have chosen on purpose. <laughs> Either a definitive, yes, you can, and you'd better live like you found it, or a very definitive, no, you can't, and you better not live like you lost it. That's where a lot of us come from on this question if we've got a lot of church background, uh, and, and this isn't really a new thing for you. So I, I realize in this room, even this morning, there are people coming from different perspectives. So here's how this issue usually takes place. So far, yes and no. Those are the two options that we often grow up hearing about on this question of can you lose your salvation. On the one side, on the sort of, we'll call you all the yes side, okay? Congratulations, yes side. So on the one side, on the yes you can side, you probably grew up hearing words like backsliding or apostasy or falling away, uh, those kinds of things. On the other side, you guys get to be the no side today. Uh, On the no you cannot side, uh, you may grow up uh, may be familiar with terms like once saved, always saved, eternal security, uh, perseverance of the saints, maybe even assurance of salvation. That's a little bit different um, for the nerds among us. So, so there are these two different ways of sort of framing this question and this issue. So the yes, you can lose it side approaches this just like the no you can't side, which is to say they go through scripture and they say, we're all the various verses that touch on this issue. Here's these and here's these. And so what they do is, for example, on the yes, you can lose it side, they'll list verses that make it sound like you can indeed turn away from salvation. Here are a few of them, four of them that we'll go through on the yes side here, um, just to sort of help set the, the, the frame of the discussion for us. John 8, 31 to 32, if you're a note taker, John 8, 31 to 32 says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you do this, you are which means the opposite would also be true. If you do not do this, then you are not. And so you can see that there's this relationship there in John 8 that you can and say yes and no in the same person. 1 Timothy 4.1. This is a real good one here. It says, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says, listen to how it says that, in later times, some will depart from the faith. That makes it sound pretty clear. Uh, at first reading that, uh, indeed, if you can depart from the faith, then you had faith from which you are departing. So how does that happen if you can't lose your salvation? Another good one, Hebrews 3. Actually, if you want to look up these kinds of things, there's a lot in Hebrews about this. Also, First John, also the Peters. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brothers. Brothers is a term that's usually used of those within the body. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, look at this, to fall away from the living God. When you read that, you think, Fall away, words, words are used there. It sounds to me like, here's, an, here's the last one here to share with you. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, beloved again is a family word used of those that are loved by God, the children of God. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And look at this, lose your own 
stability. Those are all verses that make it sound pretty clear. You can, you can walk away from this thing. And so here's what the yes, you can folks say. They say, in light of these kinds of verses, certainly, if I freely choose to follow God and respond to his offer of grace, <laughs> then certainly I can freely choose to not follow God and to walk away, to turn away. Listen to the logic there. It kind of makes sense given those verses, right? Here's what the no, you cannot lose it side does. Same kind of thing. Let's go through some of those verses. The no, you cannot lose it side lists verses that make it sound, again, like you cannot turn away from salvation of being regenerate in Christ through the Spirit. Look at Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. A God who's just and who sticks to his word won't go against what he has done for his saints, those who are uh, made holy by the work of Christ, those who believe this would say. So he's not going to forsake his saints. They are, look at this verbiage, preserved forever. I don't know how you understand the word forever, but, uh, but at first reading, this sounds like a pretty good one that says, you cannot, they are preserved forever. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Look at John 6, 37 to 39. It says this. John 6, thank you. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not like might, will. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Sounds pretty definitive there. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here's a famous one, an important passage for these folks who say no. Romans 8. Uh, all of Romans 8 is a good argument for this, but here are a couple uh, chosen out from that. Romans 8, 38 and 9. For I am sure, not like, you know, maybe, for I am sure, Paul says, that neither, and then he lists like everything, <laughs> death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, he says, just in case we didn't cover it all, will be able, nothing will be able to cut us, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by this time, these people say, by this time in Romans 8, this idea of being in Christ and identified with Christ is something that happens because of the transaction of God giving the gift of Jesus to us. So... Lots of verses like this. One last one for this no side. 1 John 5, uh, verse 18. Uh, 1 John, as I mentioned earlier, has a number of um, verses like this. It says, We know that everyone who has been born of God, which is a regeneration terminology, those who are born of the Spirit of God, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That second born of God there refers to the Son of God, Jesus. The evil one does not touch him. And folks, on this side of things, uh, the no, you cannot lose your salvation side, they say, certainly, <laughs> from verses like this, it's clear, if God sovereignly chose to reveal to me his offer of grace in a way that has become real in me because of the Spirit's regenerating work, then I certainly 
cannot undo what omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful God has sovereignly chosen to do in me. So just to set up the sort of frame here for where we're headed, as you can see, it's not an easy question to answer. It is not an easy question to answer. And it's not as remotely easy a question to answer as people on this side or this side like to say it is. And so, because each side is convinced it is right and functions as if it is the only right way, here's what the discussion looks like when it comes to this question. Functionally, here's what the discussion looks like. They come together in a tiny little place in the middle. A tiny little part in the middle where they will meet and concede that at least there's some wiggle room where those other folks are Christians. They'll say, uh, there's this little tiny part in the middle. <laughs> and, and, and obviously, those other people are Christians, sure. But as you can see, the preponderance of the evidence is, well, it's on my side. You might be a Christian if you don't believe like me, but you're wrong enough that I'm not going to go to church with you. And we've just begun preaching. Let me say that again so you hear it right. This is where it actually functions for most believers in this discussion. You might be a Christian if you don't believe like me, but you are wrong enough (laughs) that I'm not going to go to church with you. There's something about that that doesn't seem right to me. So here's how we're going to try to approach this today. Here's how we're going to try to approach this today. There we go. Because this is where we really live. And this fits better, (laughs) the truth of the matter. In the mind of God, to be frank, there's just one circle. But this fits better how we actually live. And it's representative of how all believers should hold their theological positions a little more loosely when there are questions of certainty and apparent contradiction that happens within Scripture. I've just created a whole bunch of tension for all of us. (laughs) You're welcome. This is representative of how Christians should hold their positions a little more loosely when there are questions, apparent contradictions. And it's not as clear as either side likes to make it. One other point. That picture we just had on screen there with the larger middle there, thank you, that is representative of how the body of Christ is going to look in heaven. Right? That's representative of how the body of Christ will will look in heaven. Think of the repercussions of that thought and how we here should be representative of that there. Jesus prays this himself, on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's his prayer for the church. 
And so here's how we're going to try to approach John 10 today. <laughs> and let me just admit at the outset, by not answering yes or no. <laughs> so just be aware, we're going we're gonna to take it out of that realm and go for what's most important here. And, and, and here's why. Here's why we do this here. Here's why we sit with the tension of that middle that people don't like to. Because we've got too much work to do until Jesus returns. We've got too much work to do as believers, as the church, to, to, to accept Christ's marching orders for the, the Great Commission. We've got too much work to do to be worried about little slivers on the side. You see, you see. <laughs> when discussing theology distracts us from doing and living theology, we have begun to have the discussion in the small parts, in the extremes, which means that the church will not be unified in its mission like the Great Commission calls us to. We can too easily become distracted when discussing theology takes precedent over doing and living theology. We too easily become distracted from what God wants and what he deserves from us in our lives from day to day to do the work to which we are called. This is why for us, for example, before we jump into John 10 real quick here, this is why for us here at First Christian, we're continuing to shift away on Sunday mornings from learning by sitting toward learning by serving. This is verbiage we use on purpose. We want to intentionally move away from learning by sitting and encourage our people to go more toward learning by serving, which is why we talk about worship one, serve one. Because it's practice. It's practice for us to get our heads and hearts aligned with the heart of God to keep the main thing the main thing. So that's where we're going to stay here in John 10. Jump in with me, if you would, at John 10, verse 10, where we'll start and work through real quickly these uh, five or six verses here. John 10, verse 10. And I'll make some points along the way um, that'll help us in this, uh, this question of keeping the main thing the main thing. Look at this. Jesus speaking. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Notice how Jesus sets up the terms of what's going on here. And then he says, But I, in contrast, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There in verse 10, that, that, that word they is referring to the sheep that are part of God's flock. I came that they, God's flock, his sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. So, so there it is right there at the beginning. The two sides in the battle are the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy and Jesus who comes that his sheep, that's the they there, Jesus is all about having life and having it abundantly for his sheep. So notice that he frames this as if, as if the two sides that matter most are the church aligning with the great shepherd against the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. He doesn't say anything remotely like, and, and, and by the way, comma, make sure that those of you who believe this over here, make sure that those over there get that straight before they start to care about whether or not they're lost sheep. He says, I came. Jesus says, this is why I'm here. I came that, that, that they, my sheep, may have life and have it more abundantly. In Matthew 9, verse 36, if you can write that down, 
uh, note takers. Helps give us some context for some of what we're talking about here. In Matthew 9:36, we're told that Jesus looked over the crowds. He looked over the crowds, and it says he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And it says, like sheep without a shepherd. So we're here at First Christian to look into the Word, to get a glimpse into the heart of God for the important parts of, of his uh, will for us that matter. And so he says in Matthew 9, They were harassed and helpless without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The word used there for compassion, the reason that he uh, had compassion there was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The the word there for compassion is a word that speaks of an emotion that's felt so keenly that one feels it in one's stomach. It's a little like, you know, you go over the drop of the, and you go, you're feeling that compassion, I guess. So it's like saying there in Matthew 9 that when Jesus saw the crowds and they were helpless, harassed, without a shepherd, it's like saying he loved them so passionately that he felt it in his stomach. (laughs) He loved them so passionately he felt it in his stomach. He was worked up. Jesus was worked up there in Matthew 9. Now, look again at John 10. Because here is how someone who is worked up with compassion for lost sheep acts. Let me say that again. John 10 is a description of how someone who is worked up with compassion for lost sheep acts. It says this, the thief, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Then he says this, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Here's what, here's what someone who's worked up with compassion for lost sheep does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what someone who understands the heart of God, the heart of God to save sinners, does. He repeats this four times, three additional times. He says this four times in this passage here in John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't say anything remotely like the good shepherd is extremely fixated on making sure that we answer theological questions that we're worried about that maybe we shouldn't be. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what someone who understands the heart of God does to save sinners. This is what Jesus was focused on. This is what the good shepherd was focused on when he came. He's focused on saying, I sacrifice first so that others are cared for and they're a part of this flock where they have eternal relationship with the Father and they are cared for in contrast. Keep reading to verse 12. He who is a hired hand... And not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. In other words, somebody who's in it for the pay or for self or for the auspice or, or for advancement. The hired hand sees the wolf coming. That's just like the thief. It's a parallel to the thief. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. When the going gets tough and the thief attacks, those in it for self take off. Which, notice this, renders the sheep vulnerable, verse 12. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because 
He is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. On the contrary, again, Jesus says, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. They have a relationship. They recognize each other's voice. There's a mutual knowledge and relationship there. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Two main lessons for us from these texts today. And I'll add another one here in a bit. Friends, it is so easy for us to approach the Christian life and church life like the battle is against us and some other form of church. Or the way I think this should be theologically that may be different than this other person or other church over here. And we, we begin to frame things like that. But one main lesson here for us today is the real battle, he says at the very beginning here, the real battle in the Christian life and with churches is for sheep. It's for souls. That's what we're here to do, to learn to be shepherds and farmers who care for one another. Because we want to reflect the heart of God and how he's cared for us. The battle is not between theological systems. It's it's between the thief and the good shepherd. And whenever Jesus enters the fray in the New Testament over theological stuff, it's to discredit those who are shepherding people toward darkness, toward the thief, and not to discredit those who are already in the fold. In other words... Jesus' own theological concerns are not sort of intramural. They're like intervarsity. So we, we need to be careful. We need to be careful to make sure that our theological concerns do not detract from those who are on the same team. We've got to be really careful about this. Because as we set up earlier, it's not as easy as a lot of people like to make it sound. If it were, would there be so many different types of churches? If it were that easy, it wouldn't be an issue. We tracking? (laughs) We need to be careful to make sure our theological concerns do not detract from the mission of the church in the world, (laughs) those on the same team. Second thing. The heart of the good shepherd is to lay down his life for his flock and we are called to do the same. We are called to reflect the heart of God to do what the good shepherd has done for us. Now that sounds great, you may think, like Jesus lays down his life. (laughs) What's that got to do with me? (laughs) Because he did it on the cross. I'm happy with that. Let's just leave it there. One more quick passage, which when taken with John 10, helps keep us focused on the big picture stuff. In John 21, at the end of the book, just before Jesus was to leave the disciples in charge, Jesus asked Peter three different times. He said, Peter, do you love me? Three times because Peter, if you remember, had denied Jesus three times and, of course, felt this great amount of guilt and and shame for betraying Jesus. And so Jesus restores him and says, it's going to be okay. Do what I did. And so he says three times, Peter, do you love me? And, And Peter each time says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then each time Jesus responds with these words, feed my sheep. 
if you love Jesus, you will love to feed sheep. I, mean, I understand the desires to know all the ins and outs and the questions to which there are no easy answers and that we feel like there should be more. But let's understand clearly who we are and to what we are called. Our roles may differ from person to person, from gift to gift, but we are all called as believers to lay down our lives to help care with compassion, like Jesus did for God's sheep, lost, found, maybe lost, maybe found, unsure and worried, doubly sure and not worried. When we, when we maintain our focus here, Friends, when we, when we as a church and as believers live in that reality of the larger middle, when we maintain our focus on the calling and the mission uh, of feeding sheep, of, of pointing people to the good shepherd, of helping people find and follow Jesus, and when we do that, here's the great thing. We can live in the freedom of leaving up to God questions we cannot answer as definitively as we think or as we feel we should or we want to. If you if you will respond like Peter and feed the flock, care for one another, do what God's called you to be uh, to be someone who loves to bring sheep into the fold, into a relationship with the Father. If you live there, you have the freedom of leaving up to God questions we cannot answer definitively as we think we should or could or want to or have been told. Which means we're here. We're here at First Christian Church to just say, listen, friends, eternal life and freedom. Eternal life and freedom from sin. The offer of God's grace for us, for all who might respond in faith, those are all available. That part we know. And so that's where we'll live. Let's pray, friends. Father, we are forever grateful for what you've done for us in Jesus. And we ask that you will continue to show yourself to us in ways to which we can respond meaningfully. We ask, Lord, for clarity, for direction, for purpose. We ask, Lord, did you keep our eyes focused on the cross and what you've made available to us in your son Jesus and that we would leave this place with a greater sense of mission and our purpose toward that end. We ask for this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.